Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Suave Talk presented by Bomb, Chevy, and Buick. And get this, if you buy a truck from this beautiful place at Bomb Chevy in Clinton, Illinois, you get a free lifetime subscription to Dirt on Dirt and Flow Racing. Todd, I mean, we've gotten good accounts just for working at Dirt on Dirt, you know, uh, you know, comped accounts since we started working here. So we get the deals, but hell, these people that are buying a truck when they're 20, 21 years old until maybe they're 80 years old, they get 60 years of free service to Dirt on Dirt. That's quite the deal there that Bomb's giving away. It's a no-brainer. We've all got to drive, so you might as well uh, get something out of it, right? Yeah, and like Patrick Davis is always updating us when we get another lifetime subscription. It seems like uh, here in the last few months, we've gotten plenty uh, free subscriptions given out because Bomb Chevy, a great sponsor of Suave Talk and Dirt on Dirt and Flow Racing. All right, Todd, the Dirt Track World Championship, the 42nd running. We go to Portsmouth, $100,000 on the line. I still believe that this event is the third biggest behind the World 100 and the Dirt Late Model Dream. Um, I guess so. It, it's it, it has struggled a little bit to kind of maintain its status over the years, and of course, this season and the last couple of seasons, so much more big money into the sport. Now, clearly, that that hundred thousand that's going to spend well for whoever wins. So, uh, and they've added money to this year's race um because i think they know that they also need to keep uh keep this race you know where it is a lot of its uh prestige and status comes in being the uh finale for the lucas oil series um not going to get a point chase this year but occasionally they've had some really exciting races because it comes down to the end uh so the dirt track world championship i think in the pecking order i think generally yeah it's been number three uh but uh but but it feels people on its heels a little bit, so I think it knows that uh, it needs to keep uh, keep things coming, and I'm sure they're hoping for a an exciting uh, weekend this year to to you know give it more add to the history and luster of Carl Short's uh, big race. Yeah, and we're at PRP. It's going to be the 11th season already at uh, Portsmouth Raceway Park in Ohio. It's hot or cold with some drivers. Some drivers love it. If he has Brandon Shepard, Josh Richards, I'm sure they're going to say. Heck yeah, we like it. We've dominated since it's moved. Other drivers feel like, you know, Jonathan Davenport, he doesn't like that track very much. It's still a hit or miss place, but we finally find a home for this place, at least for the time being, because for a while there, they were moving it back and forth, and it seemed like they're changing places every other year. So are you a fan of it keeping that one spot, or did you like it when it was bouncing around a little bit? Um, You know, back in the old days, you know, I remember just being in Pittsburgh and you kind of feel like it's going to be there forever. And then it, when it did start to move a little bit, uh, I think maybe when it did move, I kind of did like that. Uh, um, you know, Portsmouth is, is you know, it, it, it maybe is an acquired taste for some drivers. You know, I'm, I'm not the, it's not my favorite track, uh, but it certainly has, has done well with this race and the oh, fact yeah. that it, you know, to run a big race like this for 11 straight years is no, uh, no small accomplishment. Um, you know, I, I don't know the, when the race did move a little bit, it did, it, it was kind of trying to find its footing again, you know, when it's bouncing among, among tracks. So I, it probably does give it some stability to be at one place. Um, I, I don't know. We'll see. I, you know, I was kind of thinking of that when I was looking at the history of the race and like, wow, 11 years is a long time to be there. And what's, uh, um, you know, where, where else would it go? You know, is it starting to feel like that this is the home of the race and maybe, maybe it is. Yeah. It's hard to believe that a quarter of this race has been held at PRP, which is kind of wild to believe just all the 
rich history. So we're going to go back in time here, Pinsborough. You weren't one of the guys with like Steve Gigas burning down porta potties back in the day, were you? No, I, I behaved whenever I was at Pinsborough the best I could. Uh, although a porta potty might have been better than some of the bathrooms that I stumbled onto there, to be honest with you. But uh, uh, no, Pinsborough, Pins, most of that history is kind of before my time. You know, I wasn't going to, to Pinsborough to those races. Of course, when the race was held at Bardstown there for three years, that was close to where I grew up uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, just about a 45 minute drive. So those races were, uh, you know, I felt like, wow, the race is coming to me. That was kind of nice there. And of course, it was held another time in Kentucky. Uh, at Thunder Ridge there in eastern Kentucky. That track that uh, uh, doubled as a harness racing track and a, a place for paramutual betting. Actually, a pretty cool facility. Not the greatest racing surface, uh, but uh, it was a daytime race there, and uh, I did get to go to that one. Uh, it was it was kind of a cool, uh, cool venue. Yeah, so when, obviously, you know, a lot of the time you weren't over there at Pensboro. What did like the drivers tell you though? Like afterwards when it got moved, uh, what was like their vibe? Cause you always hear just people saying, man, you don't understand the atmosphere there. It was so much fun. It was October. You didn't know what you're going to get yourself into. It could be pouring rain, floody. It seemed like a lot of the older guys, especially like Steve Giggis, he tells us all the time that they liked it, but maybe the racing wasn't maybe the greatest. Well, I, I think the second part is for sure true. It was often, uh, often a one group race, but, but there was the magic at Pinsboro and for people there, uh, you know, it was, it was a fall tradition for fans to go there. And there was a part of it uh, that, you know, West Virginia clearly is the roots of this race and Carl Schwartz uh, races for the most part. So uh, in, in that way, the races lost a little bit of that, uh, a little bit of that vibe because Pinsboro, Pensboro is like no other place, you know, love, love it or hate it or kind of know what you're getting into when you go there. Uh, but but Pensboro, you know, it had some great storylines and great winners over time. Of course, Freddie Smith loved it when went in there for a time. So, um, you know, it's funny to think that Pensboro is such a long time ago now. You know, it's it's, uh, it's kind of really hard to wrap your head around that, that this race has now moved on to so many other tracks. All right, we're going to switch venues now from Pensboro to Bardstown. And I got to ask you, because I love this story, the 24th Dirt Track World Championship, Oilgate. I don't think a lot of people really remember that, at least like the younger viewers. I'm sure some of the older timers or racers like Tim McCready, the champion, he might have been one of the five involved with throwing oil on the track. Just how chaotic was that? I mean, kind of out of the blue that they would decide and maybe they thought oil on the racetrack would make the grooves better. I don't know. That's what Bloomquist said. It was, uh, <laughs> I think it was, uh, you know, Barkstown, to be fair, Barkstown had some great races over the years, but the dirt track world championship, the first two years it hosted it in 2002 and three, it was, it was traditionally a daytime show. So the track was not as good in the daytime. So those two races we're not that great. So here we're coming back to Barstown for the third year. And people's patience are, is wearing a little thin with the track, especially people that have been to other Dirt Track World Championships. So this time they are going to run it into the evening. Um, so, um, again, the first night the track was good. The second night the track was lousy. And, the, and basically these drivers, a uh, uh, half dozen or so guys, kind of take it upon themselves for uh, – Really, there was no opportunity to make this work, but to but to take quarts of oil, put it out on the track, 
and supposedly make uh, make a better groove or to, or to provide better racing. Uh, what happened was they went out there and hot lapped a couple of times, and these guys started dumping the oil. This is right before the race is going to start. And, uh, you know, it was hard to even see what was going on. Uh, I think the drivers on the track, if they saw a guy ahead of them reach his hand out the window and dump, dump a <laughs> quart of oil, they might have seen it. Uh, but, uh, but basically, obviously, that's not going to do anything. As Bloomquist said later, if we all would have had 20 gallons of oil, maybe we could have made a difference. Uh, the, it didn't do anything except cause a... I, I mean, I'm not absolutely sure, but uh, some drivers complained it caused some of the early cautions, including a pileup on the first lap. Uh, the drivers that, that were doing this mostly denied it or kind of, you know, kind of like uh, looked the other way or acted like they didn't. But clearly there was uh, some greasy spots on some of the sides of these cars. Uh, and a lot of the drivers who did not do it, they they were not happy with the shenanigans, you know, especially those that thought it contributed to those wrecks. Uh, you know, Rick Ecker wins the race and, um, and the oil gate kind of becomes a footnote to that, but it, it, it really was uh, Bardstown's last chance to make this race work. And, and I think it was kind of a, you know, it was kind of over after that. Everybody kind of knew, well, this, this track has had three cracks at it. We just not have not gotten it, uh, uh, gotten it down. And then to have this kind of fiasco this last year was, uh, uh, was kind of shut the book on, uh, on Bardstown's, uh, DTWC, uh, history. And then the best quote was like from T-Mac afterwards, like, I have no idea where this came from. And you have that great picture of him and those left rear is just completely covered with oil. And you're like, okay, T-Mac, well, I guess we'll go with your word, but come on now. I mean, does this magically appear on your race car? <laughs> he did. He did have a good line. He was, uh, he said, he said, no, I, I wouldn't have been dumping oil out of the car because my, my engine was low on oil pressure. I needed oil in the engine, not outside the car. And I'm like, <laughs> well, that that's one way to look at it. But mo most of the guys were a little, uh, uh, kind of hemming and hawing, and nobody officially kind of admitted it. Although, you know, you could kind of figure out to who, who was part of it. All right, Oil Gate, that was at Bluegrass in 2004. And then, like you said, 2003, they had 150 cars. Then the following year, they only had 89. So a lot of people, like you said, are like, okay, we're getting tired of going to Bardstown. Well, then the following year, they go to KC, Bloomquist wins in 05. But then arguably probably the greatest race in Dirt Track World Championship history, 2006 Shane and Bab holding off Scott Bloomquist and Bloomer had some great quotes like I cannot believe I can never get past Shane and Bab he ran the perfect race because a few times you watch that video there Scott I think gave him a little bit too much room because other drivers right now would definitely throw that slider and cut off his line on top yeah that was one of those races where it got to lap 90 or whatever and he was closing in on him and you're like well he he's got this and however many times Lundquist got right up, even kind of, I guess, edged ahead of him. But I, I agree with you. He gave he gave him plenty of room, uh, Shannon, uh, to to hang on. And 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 really, it was it was an impressive. I mean, Bab had to be feeling it that last couple of laps there to have Bloomquist all over him. It was a it was a good race. And of course, when they're doing that, kind of coming off too. You know, Atomic has that famous uh, you know ledge on the backstretch where you can go over. Or, or get into that scary turn three wall. So it was, there was a lot of tension there uh, for Shannon to turn back uh, uh, Bloomquist challenges in the final laps. Yeah, it was definitely an instant classic. I love going back and watching that race. You know, they had a couple more years there, 
Then in 2009, I think this track got stuck, you know, stooped a little bit. Lawrenceburg, kind of just horrible weather, cold conditions. I know it was in Indiana, so people maybe the traditionalists didn't like that idea that it was going to be over there. But the racing was phenomenal during the day. Jimmy Mars held off Rick Eckert and Brady Smith. I thought maybe they could have got another crack at it because it was overall a crappy weekend with weather, but ended off with a great race at the end. I I agree. I was I, I thought it was Lawrenceburg really kind of got the shaft with having bad weather as a lower car count. Uh, I agree with you. I think some people saw it in Indiana. Why are we taking this race <laughs> to Indiana? Although it is, it's right there at Cincinnati. It's yeah. not far away. And, um, and, and as you said, that daytime race was fantastic as daytime races go. Um, yeah, it was, it was unfortunate because Lawrenceburg and I, and the old time which out there, maybe remember the, the old Lawrenceburg, which was a little, uh, almost, a, almost a circle, just a little bitty track where you didn't have walls and all that. And then they've, uh, uh, built this new, all the new grandstands and all the new track and the new wall and all that, you know, you're thinking, Hey, this, this might uh, be, be a place that, yeah, you know, great. to to have the race a place that before and since then has basically become a you know open wheel stronghold it's, it's a shame lawrenceburg uh, even outside the dirt track world championship hasn't really uh uh kind of made a way where late models are more a part of that track because i think it's a great track and again relatively close to me uh you know close to the florence eldora crowd there um, it's a, it's a shame it hadn't done better. So I, you know, but you also kind of got the feel there that one year. I mean, it was to say it was cold was, it was for, for that time of year, it was frigid. Yeah. I mean, it was like, it was the first real, uh, um, cold setting in and man, people were bundled up. We were freezing our butts off. So, so you kind of felt like that weekend, it's just like, well, this is, this is two times we're coming to Lawrenceburg the first and the last. I mean, it, it just didn't go well. Yeah. And then in 2011 Rigsby, I was an intern kind of working part-time. He's like, Hey, do you want to go to the dirt track? And I'm like, okay, I might go, but it was my senior year of college. It was like homecoming at Illinois state. So I stayed back and arguably this could be one of the most miserable weekends. Just with like the weather and rain. We raced all day on Saturday. Don O'Neill gets the win, but I don't think there was a pass all stinking day there. That that was a that was a rough one, it, and and kind of when you knew with them when they went out there, there wasn't going to be uh, wasn't going to be much racing room, and that one, uh, um, you know, Atomic or Casey, I guess it was changing names in that period there. Um, yeah, it, that that certainly hurt it as far as uh, you know being a long time host of the race. It was just a, but a lot of that, you know, we were victim of the weather, and it just. It was just not the greatest weekend there. So we're going to PRP, and this wasn't the dirt track, but I got to bring it up to you. The pass in the grass by Chubb Frank over Billy Drake. I mean, that <laughs> video just cracks me up every single time because Billy Drake, the lap before the corner before, definitely goes below the tires, and Chubb Frank's just going to make an example out of anybody. He's like, well, if they're not going to charge me with this, I'm going to do it. And, I mean, it's just a wild circumstance. The dust is flying. You have that tower in the infield of Portsmouth. I think that is just what – that is like the one moment that makes PRP. I feel like, especially like, you know, prior to like the internet era. Yeah. I mean, it's one, it's one of the most famous passes or one of the most famous laps in dirt late model history. And that's what I love about Chubb. Cause Chubb is, he's not the kind of guy that acts like he wasn't doing it or whatever. He's like, 
well, if he's going to do that, I'll show him. And I mean, I mean, there's never, I, it's funny. I, I wasn't at the race, but I talked to Billy and Chubb afterwards and it was, it was hilarious to get, uh, to get their quotes into the, cause I remember Billy, Billy was kind of like, you know, Billy was never afraid to go low. Let's be honest. Yeah. I mean, he's right there on the bottom all the time. But I remember him kind of saying he, he like looked to his left and he sees Chubb going through there. He just couldn't believe what was going on. So uh, definitely in the legacy of Portsmouth, uh, uh, that's uh, that's one of the moments that uh, definitely everybody remembers. Yeah, I mean, if you're a photog back in the day, look out there in three and four. <laughs> Goodness, I mean, dust is flying, Chubb. Just knowing how, like you said, just knowing Chubb, just his like quotes afterward had to be gold. <laughs> Yeah, he uh, Chubb, uh, that, that's classic Chubb for sure. All right. So one thing I do love about the dirt track is just like when you pull into Portsmouth, you can just smell that campfire. It feels like fall. There's so many campers. It definitely does have a cool vibe to it. There's You can't beat around the bush on that. It, it's just very special, and it feels like you are going back in time a little bit. Yeah, I think uh, – and while it's not Pinsboro, it does it – does I think draw some of those people that remember those days where everybody went and camped out and everybody made a weekend of it. And yeah, like you said, it's uh it is truly fall, you know, the leaves are changing, uh, crisp nights, you know, you have to bundle up when you're camping out or in your RV or whatever. Uh, it, it is the classic fall race. You know, we have lots of, lots of races now and lots of, you know, races every weekend from now till whenever it seems like, uh, but the dirt track world championship has always been very much tied to like, uh, autumn. I mean, it is the autumn uh, classic. Yeah. And then we can't talk about this event without bringing up Carl short in the age of just promoters, you know, he's been doing it for 42 years now. And that's, that's just kudos to him because a lot of people maybe just would give up on this event but he's still you know fighting through it wearing that sweet sweater he always wears every single year i mean <laughs> to give him credit to have this event going for so long he made it to 100 grand they're putting a little bit back more in the purse like 42 years is a long damn time to be you know promoting a one single event yeah and he for sure had his ups and downs but to stick it out in this sport for that long is is quite impressive and it's funny you know you go back and you know, a lot of times I'm archiving photos or looking photos or digging up historical stuff and, and nobody likes to be told that they're aging, but to see a young Carl short and then Carl gets a little older, his sweaters get a little better, you know, a little gray in the beard, all that. It's funny, funny to watch the progress of a young Carl short, uh, uh, and he'll be in victory lane uh, in all likelihood again this weekend uh, at his big race. How hard do you think it is for a promoter like that, that only, you know, promotes the hillbilly and then this to prepare to you know just you know everybody's gonna be watching it. it's the lucas oil finale i feel like it'd be i don't know i had a lot of pressure on it but it seems like he can always fight through that a little bit it, it is pressure and for carl you know and other promoters of his ilk who've been around as long as he did you you also have had to reinvent yourself as a promoter you know you know carl kind of famously would would go to the big races later in the summer uh, putting uh, flyers on, on windshields and all that stuff, you know, the classic kind of old school style promoter stuff. And now of course he's in this age where, you know, social media and streaming and uh, you know, the sport has changed over 42 years. So, uh, so Carl and promoters, promoters, you've been around that long. 
they really had to kind of like, yeah. you know, you kind of go with the nuance of how the how promoting changes and what you got to do to to get people and uh, get butts in seats. Yeah, we wish nothing to the best to Carl Short for the 42nd running of the Dirt Track World Championship at Portsmouth. I wanted to go through some storylines as we headed into the weekend. Shout out to Tim McCready winning his winning a back-to-back championship for Lucas Oil, holding off Sheppy late. He had that little dust up at Knoxville where Sheppy cut it, but then right back, one of the best points racer we'll probably ever see in the history of our sport. T Mac gets it done and gets another championship in a very tough Lucas Oil field. Yeah, and you like to think that this, uh, you know, takes a little pressure off Tim, gives him a chance to try to, try to win this race and not worrying about points. Because, I mean, I, I don't care what they – those guys all season are like, oh, we're not thinking about points and blah, blah, blah. But clearly, as it gets toward the end, you you know, you do kind of feel that pressure. Blow, you know, you don't want to blow a, a points lead late in the year. Yeah. So, to, so to kind of go into Portsmouth not having to worry about that – uh, that's good for for Tim and one other and, and then we have other guys going there. Of course, Brandon Shepard is in his final races in the in the Rocket House car, and these other guys that are are switching. You know, Hudson O'Neill. These other guys are leaving cars. I guess Max Blair is going to be there. It's kind of interesting. Um, you know, you're you're playing out the season with these teams. Um, yeah, I don't I don't care what you say. That that plays a little bit into it. You really have to put an effort in to make sure you're not kind of just playing out the string and letting it go. So, th- so we have several teams that are kind of in that position uh, of racing here at uh, the dirt track world championships and later races this fall uh, with teams. They will not be back with uh, next season. So uh, that's a little bit of a mental challenge for not only the driver, but the crew guys and everybody to kind of, uh, you know, keep their head in the game here uh, in the late, uh, the last part of these relationships. Yeah. The last two years, T-Mac has gotten third and fifth. So can he get his first DTWC title? Like you said, no pressure. He's just going to go out there and try to win hundred grand, and then you get that big uh, paycheck at the end of 150. So it could be a big weekend for him, but can he get the job done and finally get his first uh, DTWC? Because I feel like maybe he ran it a lot at the beginning. Then there was a little years there that he didn't participate in or just had bad runs. The last couple of years, he's kind of bounced back. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, you don't – you don't think of uh, McCready and Portsmouth necessarily, but you know, you never, you know, this race is a little bit, you kind of get a feel during prelims of who has, has a good card, you know, Fort wins last year, a little bit, maybe a little bit of surprise there. Uh, obviously everybody looks at Shepard and that best performance team with different drivers has done so well uh, in, in the Portsmouth era of the dirt track world championship. Uh, we'll, we'll see how McCready does. I mean, I, to be honest, I mean, I'm sure he wants to go out and win, uh, but but I'm sure he he's he's be glad to cradle that uh, Lucas Oil Trophy on Saturday night uh, and not really have to worry about uh, a weekend where maybe something might go wrong. You know, it'll be a it'll be a crowning achievement for him either way. Yeah, and speaking of Shepard, four titles, 2013. We can rewind. He just had that epic pass in the Rocket One over Scott Bloomquist. He ran in 2012 with the team, but that kind of like maybe put him on the map even more because they were running summer nationals in 2012. Big time pass. Can Sheppy kind of like close the door on this chapter of his life with this Rocket One team and get his title five and tie Freddie Smith? They're always competitive there. Last year, obviously, they got kicked out with the altercation with Ferguson's crew and Mark Richards and company. So can they get number five and kind of like close that book on a good, happy storybook ending with that race team? That, that would be huge. And to think Shepard could get a fifth third track world championship at such a young age, 
Um, and we mentioned, you know, the pass in the grass and all that. I would say the, the Shepherd pass for his first dirt track world championship, it, that's the one I remember most uh, in yeah. the Portsmouth there of the dirt track world championship. I mean, you know, he got up there where you didn't think anybody could do that. And, and just uh, that was a pretty stirring victory. And you look back at that victory lane picture, Brandon's a young man then. I mean, he's, you know, still very fresh faced and, uh, and uh, pretty impressive that he won that race back then, especially with such a dramatic pass. Yeah. I would, I would list him among the favorites this weekend for sure. I don't, I don't think uh, there's any question that people won't uh, be fearing that number one car. Yeah, that'd be uh, quite the finish for that race team. They've won a lot of money and a lot of victories here the last you know several years with that team put together, and obviously Brandon going to the B5 car next year. Other storyline, Jonathan Davenport, he's entered a track he's not very good at. He'll say that, but he did say that about Knoxville. He ends up winning that one this year as well. So calm down, J.D., calm down. But if he wins this, I think he's going to have the crown jewel sweep. He won a couple of them that were on his list that he didn't win, like Batesville and, you know, the Knoxville Nationals. To have a crown jewel sweep for a guy that's just kind of put it on him since 2015, that is a pretty special and remarkable. And He's putting himself up there with Bloomquist and Moyer, in my opinion. Yeah, it's a short list of races that he hasn't won. I mean, uh, this would this is definitely the glaring one on his resume to get that dirt track world championship. And I and I agree. I you know JD really doesn't think he's any good at Portsmouth. I mean, he's run run solid there. He, had yeah, he won, got third last year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he's he's been up front. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I would, I would put him in the favorites there with Shepard too. And he's also, you know, this inches him closer and I inch him it'd be, a, it'd be a, a big jump closer to getting toward a potential $2 million season, which is, you know, uh, unfathomable. I mean, even throwing out the million, you know, a million dollar season in our sport, uh, is remarkable. So yeah, I think JD is, uh, um, a little, a little extra juice to, 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 like you said, uh, complete that, uh, career crown jewel resume, uh, and, uh, and knock off another huge victory in the season where he's had lots of big paydays. Yeah. Donnie Moran gets a million dollars. Brandon Overton gets close, but back when Donnie Moran got that million dollar win, did you ever think there's no way that somebody's going to win $2 million, let alone a million dollars again, unless we did have the race, but like you said, he can win a million dollars if you take that race out of it, which I think is just crazy in itself. Yeah, I agree. It's and and we've all seen this the last couple of years with uh, more bigger races and more money going into the sport. And I guess you knew this was possible, but still, somebody has to go out and win it. Uh, so uh, lot, lots of guys winning big money this year, but JD's uh, uh, JD the stature of JD's victories, especially with Eldora Million. Uh, he's just putting him in the stratosphere. Yeah, I mean, JD looking for that another crown jewel to add to his list, try to get to that million dollars. Just as a whole in our sport, social media has been buzzing. A lot of complaining. The racing hasn't been very good. Um, you know, promoters have came out saying, like, streaming doesn't work, stuff like that. Where do you see this sport going? Can we still, like, maintain this? Or do you think at one point maybe we just blow it up all ourselves because we just can't – be on the same page as the way I'm looking at it. That's how I feel. I I think the, the sport will will make it. There's it's not going to disappear or anything like that. And I and there's always going to be uh, issues that we're dealing with. I think you know we need to look at the the racing, the quality of racing this year. Is that because of 
the tires? Is it because of the droop rule? Is there some way? Do we have to deal with the aerodynamics? And I think yes, yes, yes for all those. Um, I think it was a positive uh, last year when uh, uh, at PRI there was a real sit down uh, that included many of the many of the top uh, uh, series in the sport, and I think that uh, to continue that. Uh, and to really be thoughtful about that and include the top drivers who know about it to make sure they feel like their voice is heard, that they're not just being told from on high what to do. Uh, I think all those things uh, are important when it comes to making sure racing stays, stays uh, uh, keep, we keep a quality of racing. Because sometimes I think people complain, oh, it's been flag to flag this and this. Sometimes that just happens. That's uh, happened the though the whole. T- that's happened a lot of times in racing throughout the years. Look at all the history books of like the World 100 in the 70s and 80s and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, and I agree. I think there's some concern to that, but but to just say, oh, that's the trooper, or oh, that's tires, or oh, that's this track, or whatever it is. Uh, sometimes it's not all one thing. It's a combination of things. Uh, now to keep your uh, uh, to keep tra- tabs on that and to make sure that we're providing the best uh, the best product out there. Uh, that's definitely definitely something that uh, everyone uh, everyone wants that to happen, and and for everyone, the powers that be, to make sure that uh, we've got uh, the best product on the track and have rules uh, that will uh, enhance that and not uh, make that something to where racing isn't as good, or that it's it's been a or it makes a makes it a struggle for teams and drivers to prepare cars in that way. Yeah, and how do you think? moving forward because i think it's going to be a problem how do you do that balance if you're a promoter or a series that okay we're paying sixty thousand up top to win but it's only two thousand to start and like a lot of drivers are saying wait can we just like bump that up i think we're still okay if we race for 30 grand but you put that other thirty thousand dollars into that pot but if you're the promoter you're thinking you know what maybe fans aren't going to show up because it doesn't have seventy five thousand dollars to win which i think Maybe some races, but I think for the most part, they know the drivers are coming. They're going to go no matter what the cost is for it to win, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a forever struggle. And I think sometimes people forget, if you go back many years, now the starting money, and uh, uh, and that was very, was quite low. It was really bad. We are at a place now where you, you definitely do have more money in the field, right. uh, throughout the field and finishing – you know, if you went to all the crown jewel races and finished eighth, you would make some pretty decent money over the year. Now, nobody wants to finish eighth, but clearly, uh, you know, eighth today is much better than eight 20 years ago. Um, so I think, and I agree with you, for a promoter, that's tricky. Hey, you want to have that big number up top. Uh, but you also, as a promoter, you realize, hey, if I want to have more than 30 cars in the pits, I got to be paying some money in the back so that a guy knows he's guaranteed X amount of money if he if he makes the race. I think overall that that is better. Um, it, it's tricky. You know, it's a, it's a little chicken or egg. You know, you kind of inch both those up uh, at the same time. You know, the XRSS, I guess they they had mostly 50,000 went to win races and they did adjust their purses kind of a third of the way through the season and bounce those down to 40 and, and 20 in some cases. And, uh, and, and add some money back through the field at the behest of drivers, you know, it's a balance of what the drivers need, what the promoters need to make this thing work. Uh, but, uh, it's always, a it's always a little tricky to, to get that balance just right. Yeah. And just, talking to several drivers the last couple of years nowadays, even I, Ryan Unzicker, for example, he always 
when he's deciding where to race, he's always seeing where that 10th place pays. And they, I feel like the lot, the magic number that a lot of drivers have said, including him is $2,000 for that 10th starting spot. Then they feel like, okay, we can go there and get a good solid top 10 run. Maybe we can't win it. Obviously we're there to win, but something happens. We get eighth, ninth or 10th. We're okay with that. Yeah. There's no doubt drivers have a, um, you know, you, you kind of have that parameter of like, what, what is it worth it to me to drive X amount of highway miles or to compete against uh, this level of competition or whatever it is. I, I may have told this story before, but it cracks me up. Uh, Steve Chase bolt one time at Kentucky Lake Motor Speedway. I think it was a big unsanctioned race. He literally took the payout sheet, uh, wrote it out in a Sharpie and taped it onto his uh, steering wheel. Uh, so before the race, he goes out, he has that thing. He knows how much money he's making for how long he's staying on the track and what's going on. And so, uh, you know, that gave him a very firm reminder of like, listen, if I'm out here running around at 17th, this is how much money I'm making. And maybe it's better if I just pull off the track. So drivers definitely have uh, have in their mind, they need to know, uh, that they can make a certain amount uh, for where they're going and what what the challenge is and what it's worth uh, to go run a race wherever it is. And then, you know, that's going to be different from driver to driver. Uh, but definitely as that start money and, and money through the field improves, that's going to improve uh, the chances of drawing those guys to come to your race. So I got to ask you, I mean, we can't have this interview without asking Summer Nationals. Like when you were working for National Dirt Digest, I feel like you got very, very giddy and were very pumped up and excited to go cover the Summer Nationals because you're the type that I've known for, uh, you know, 12 years that you like bouncing around and going to different tracks each and every single night. Yeah, the Summer Nationals is, I mean, to think that it's still going, I mean, you know, we all have our beefs about it and the schedule's not always perfect and that maybe the dry, the field isn't that great this year or whatever, uh, but that, that thing has gone 30 some odd years is, uh, it, it's really a testament to Bob Mimmer, really, for creating the thing. Uh, I remember, you know, I didn't, you know, in the early years of it, I just kind of stumbled onto it. And when I realized, you know, I think I was like literally sitting in the stands at Hobsot one night and I saw one of the flyers and I, I hadn't seen it. I think this was the thing they passed out to drivers mostly. And I grabbed this flyer and I see. The crazy, you know, from one track, one night to the next, all, you know, going from these many tracks in many states. And I, I mean, I was so excited that the next night I, I took off for St. Francois County in Farm Gene, Missouri to, to follow the series. And really, I've been following it in one way or another ever since then. Uh, I know you love the Summer Nationals and, uh, um, you know, we only hope we only hope the best for it. I think, it, you know, they've had missteps and then they've had good decisions. And then definitely the, the, the series has the support of Dirt Car. I really appreciate that. They have all the officials. Uh, it's really a, a, a serious it's series. It's well run now. Even oh, when I started. started in 2012, there was like just saying now they have like, yeah. you know, check ins, plenty of scorers. They have a oh, whole yeah. crew now. It's perfect. Yeah, I think that that has really been the that infrastructure of the series has really been a big improvement to, to way back in the day when it would just be Bob and maybe a couple of tech inspectors. And I guess Sam eventually joined him. But uh, it's uh, it, it's, you know, I hope the best for the Summer Nationals. I guess here within a month or so, we may be seeing what the Summer Nationals schedules looking like, you know. As most of us, I think, agree, we, we hope it's trimmed down a little bit, a little bit, you know, be be a little stronger um, 
and don't go don't go for quantity. Go a little more for quality. Maybe tighten it up a little bit more. I think that this series has always been better when it's within a month or less, and you have night after night racing. In my opinion, and that's what I get to like. They've kind of, especially this last couple summers, they've kind of been surpassed by other series and other races being created during the midweek now because they know the fans will show up. People will watch it on streaming that, you know, they're playing, they're paying 15 grand that's in Iowa. Well, we're only racing for five grand still. So I think Sam and, you know, the people at Dirt Cardi maybe need to look at that too as well. Yeah, we'll we'll see where it turns out. I think, you know, as it kind of, as I said, it kind of has ebbed and flowed, um, you know, I mean, There's the car no count was great Look, this year, so that that was a good plus for him. I think it was yeah, up compared to what it was last year. Yeah, and you look at Pey- Peyton Freeman coming up. That That's what you like to yeah. see. You like to see drivers from other regions come and tackle the series. And actually, at the beginning of this season, uh, those first seven or eight races, they really drew kind of a neat mix of a field and a lot of different guys. Uh, I, I think that's, that, that's good because it shows that the – the reputation of the series uh, is still good enough to draw uh, guys who see that as a good way to get better. And really Peyton Freeman, I think we saw that right before our eyes uh, get better as he challenges these new tracks uh, and tackles this new series. All right. July 17th, 1996. How the hell does 28% of the 1996 go for 50 get disqualified for summer nationals? I mean, that's just absurd. I think, I mean, a whole bunch of guys, including big name guys too. Yeah, I mean, I think the what the drivers thought, I think there's clearly something wrong with the scales. I mean, I, I wasn't up there, uh, but trying to trying to fish out what was going on, you know, I, I, clearly there must have been some issue. I mean, I never heard anything about about how it all turned out. But yeah, too too many guys were were light at that that race for not to be something going on. You know, you get it when there's uh, one or two guys light. They also weighed a lot of guys. You know, some tracks the only weigh, you know, maybe the top three or whatever. So certainly the more guys you weigh, you're gonna find some light guys. Yeah. That's one interesting thing I know I note about the sport that is not always totally fair is when guys who are if you only weigh or check the deck height or check certain things of the top uh the top five guys, well what about the guy who's 17th? Who knows what he was doing? And and I realize you don't necessarily feel like you need to penalize that guy. Uh but it is a sport where uh, if we weighed all 24 cars at every race, uh, clearly there would be a lot more people that were light. All right. We've seen hot streaks before. This will be my last, like, well, I have one more after the summer question. Rick Auckland, 1997. Did he really use the same Hoosier tire for all those wins? Or is it kind of like, a? <laughs> I know he won a lot of races. That was my dad's favorite driver, but they're saying that he ran this for this long. And we're talking about tires not lasting very long. It's just pretty wild to see that a, a right rear tire won all these big races, including the Brownstown USA nationals, North South and several summer nationals events. That's pretty wild story in itself too. Yeah. And I'm, I can't remember exactly the number of races they say, but they did have this trusty right rear, uh, I guess a 40 that, that they put on and was uh, winning all these races. Auckland back then was, uh, uh, in the the summer nationals in that stretch, he was uh, on the verge of, you know, making it a bore, uh, just like Bab did for a few years later. And then uh, Moyer did in certain occasions. Uh, Auckland was just, uh, uh, he was just something else. And Dave Hoff uh, was, uh, I guess, his primary crew chief back then. I think he's the one that had told me that story about that. But uh, uh, Auckland, that was definitely uh, the prime of his career. 
and uh, lots of lots of fun, lots of fun watching him win some of those big races in the Summer Nationals and others. Uh, they really, I guess, from '96 to to '98 or '9 was really when he was uh, knocking them off. Yeah. Last question. Even Billy Moyer admitted this, and Shannon Babb admitted this. With Bob Memmer, when they did the draw of the cards, the ace, the starting spot, had a mark on it. And every time they would race down there to see who could get it first, because they knew they could see that car. I mean, they were taking advantage of Bob there. Yeah, it was it was kind of unfortunate. <laughs> I think they kind of figured out. Yeah, I, I kind of got wind of that by one of the crew guys. Kind of, kind of told. Called, he, I, I think he got a crew a, guy he, telling you something. They always give you the details. <laughs> well, I think he kind of alluded to, "Hey, you don't think it's any shock that we've been on the pole three nights in a row, or whatever?" And so. <laughs> I, I did a story about it and I have a picture of those cards that, that Bob would spread out. And yeah, so it was, a I can't remember the scene. It was kind of a beach scene or something like palm trees and a beach and greenery. And there was like, I don't know, a coffee stain or something on the corner <laughs> of, uh, of the top card. So, so, you know, they would come down there and Bob would get his cards and spread them out. Uh, and then, you know, whoever knew that, uh, they would just pick the first one, you know, pick the right one. Uh, I can't remember if, if Bob knew that and it went away or if he just went to another system, but, uh, for a while it was a little disingenuous for those guys to, uh, to literally be picking a card when they knew what, uh, what they were getting. All right. So people at home go to the search engine and click stories and click unsolved mysteries. It was written in March 10th, 2008. So if you want to see some crazy conspiracy theories back then, uh, I think, Todd, I will help you with this. I think we need to get out a new one because that's, you know, 15 years nearly. We can we can get some good ones. We have plenty of Bloomquist. We have Tiregate at Eldora, the Scales. We have plenty other ones we could definitely figure it out. Was that actually a Scott Weber in the Hobstock car? Like, we have plenty of these we can get uh, get figured out. I'll help you with it. <laughs> you, do, you do have to give that stuff uh, some years to kind of percolate a little yes. bit because uh, people can get a little sensitive about yes. some of those things, but uh, but it is funny that this sport lends itself maybe a little less so now that so much is on streaming and yeah. so many things people witness. Uh, but when people didn't witness things back in the day, uh, the rumor mill would get going, or you would hear at the next week's race races. You know, you wouldn't believe what happened at such and such about who got in a fight, or about who cheated, or about uh, whatever happened. So. Uh, uh, the sport definitely had uh, a little more mystery back then, I think, uh, uh, with those uh, some of those stories. One of my favorite stories, I always go back and look at all the 19 stories that you put together there. So people want to go look for it, go in the top right corner of your screen and search Unsolved Mysteries, scroll the bottom. It's a very great uh, story by him and uh, some staff and correspondent reports as well. Todd, as always, it's always fun interviewing you. Dirt Track World Championship talk. I cannot wait. $100,000 on the line live at Flow Racing. Uh, thank you for coming on, and I appreciate taking time out of your day to, you know, come on Suave Talk. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.